Hi, you're listening to Energy 360, a podcast by the CSIS Energy and National Security Program. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Program. Uh, very pleased to be here today as your host. We're having a special edition of Energy 360 uh, in honor of an upcoming midterm election here in the United States. Here with me to discuss this is Kevin Book, who is a non-resident senior associate here at CSIS and also a partner in Clearview Energy Partners. Thanks for being here today, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Kevin, one of the things I like um, the most about your firm is that you try to put numbers and analytics behind something that a lot of people um, don't fully understand, which is the relationship between energy and politics, particularly at the state level. And so, uh, as I said, I hear there's a midterm election coming up. Uh, Apparently. <laughs> allegedly, it'll be uh, somewhat informative, not only for the near-term implications for who controls the House and, uh, and the Senate and also some state-level politics, um, but also in terms of informing the next presidential election cycle and signals like that. But before we get ahead of ourselves, um, is energy going to play a role at all in this midterm election? In some sense, it already has. So there's two ways to think about it. The first one is, does energy influence the election, which isn't usually how you think about it. It's sort of like, well, how is this going to impact energy? But getting votes from people who care about energy is a way to influence the election. The president has already put out an, an ethanol policy, which seems uh, intended to look at at least a couple of the at-risk Republican-held seats in Iowa, which happen to be prolific corn and ethanol producers. Uh, it may not be to refiners' liking. In fact, I think a lot of refiners have said explicitly it is not. Uh, but it seems intended in some ways uh, to send a signal to stakeholders that the Republican Party has their back. Uh, there's other aspects of how energy could influence the election, which hasn't yet happened. Uh, so gasoline prices, they usually matter for presidential contests. I don't know. Do you know why voters blame presidents for high gasoline prices? I don't actually. I, I wonder if, if anyone's done a study on it. It would be good to find out why they're apparently responsible because they can't change the price very easily. But in midterm contests, they don't typically come up very much. As it turns out, in this particular midterm contest, you now have – Depends on who you ask and whose numbers you use. But there's roughly 12 to 14 Senate seats that are in some sort of wobbly in play place. And most of them are prolific gasoline consumers relative to the incomes in those states. It's a big share of spending. And so if there were a, a midterm election where high gasoline prices might be influential in shaping votes, well, this could be that election. I'm not saying that's likely, but it's possible. And is, that's one of the reasons why you hear all of this speculation about should prices go up, there being a strategic petroleum reserve drawdown. Do you still think that that's a concern? Would that be a tactical move that would impact the elections? Or are we just sort of too close to the elections now where that kind of thing could matter? The tactical draw of a strategic resource? <laughs> uh, I don't think we're too close. The, uh, the signature in terms of what it signals to voters, there is early voting. And so it's not going to be a comprehensive mindshare shift. 
But if you move prices when they are high, uh, that can make a difference. Uh, it does seem increasingly unlikely, though, because crude prices have relented. They've relented in large part due to a variety of factors that you know, may or may not reverse before the election, but if they do, very close to the election on the Iran oil sanctions. Mm. And are these kind of like tactical maneuvers in and around a proximity to an election different? I mean, have they happened in previous election cycles, or is this sort of a... Uh, your your ethanol move by the Trump administration, do you think that that's sort of an anomaly? No, I think, in fact, you mentioned the SPR. It happens to be part of history here in this country. The, the outgoing Clinton administration drew the SPR in October, right before the November 2000 election, uh, doing so actually getting sort of a twofer. Uh, they built a, he- a heating oil reserve, which was particularly relevant uh, to New England states and, and among the Eastern states, Pennsylvania also, uh, always a swing state, and uh, and filled the heating oil reserve by drawing the SPR. Uh, so it had the effect of lowering the headline price of crude and therefore gasoline, and also providing some measure of fuel security to heating customers, sort of heating intensive households in the Northeast. So has it been done before? Yes, it has been done before. Uh, it does happen from time to time. Uh, I've even heard former officials say that they would do such things. But uh, it's not always going to be successful because so little of energy maps directly to sort of the, 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 the way in which people vote. Most people don't work in the energy sector. All of us are energy consumers. So high prices, yes, we can relate to that. Drill Baby Drill spoke to high price anxiety. No one actually had to do any drilling uh, to be able to speak to voters with that message in 2008. And it was very resonant, it, 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 particularly people who are driving long distances and low incomes. Uh, but in, in the long run, you know, there's, if you say, well, what about coal? You know, the, the coal message going into the 2016 presidential election may not actually have changed very much about the real world. Uh, if you look at the plight of coal miners in America, it's more or less the same. Some improvement in production, some lower cost from less regulation. But for the most part, it probably got into the heads of Pennsylvanians in a meaningful way, may have contributed towards the outcome that that brought President Trump victory. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned a couple of ways in which energy may impact some voters in the midterm election, but are people campaigning on energy issues right now? Uh, I think Dean Heller is, for example. Dean Heller, the senator from Nevada. Uh, Nevada, I'm told. I pronounce that wrong every time. Please apologize, Nevada. Sorry, uh, the state s- of Nevada. <laughs> the senator from the state of Nevada, the Republican who is a first-term senator who's been embattled uh, and uh, has the only gigafactory in the country in his state, uh, has been proposing to extend the, the phasing out credit for electric vehicles. The electric vehicles credit is tripped by 200,000 vehicles per manufacturer. It begins a phase down where it cuts in half over successive six-month periods. Tesla has already triggered that that threshold. And so uh, Senator Heller's proposal, which is is not by any means guaranteed to pass into law, but very clearly signals to stakeholders in his state that he has green values and he's committed to local business. Uh, that's, that's an example, I think, of how you might see campaigning on energy. Mm, and what about things like climate change? I mean, the it, it is it getting expressed through clean energy terms or are people talking explicitly about climate change in any of the races? You get a sort of a new vocabulary of climate change when you get it at all. I mean, I suppose there are times and places for the climate debate. Uh, it's usually sort of, uh, again, it's a presidential sort of top-down platform kind of discussion. Uh, in places where you already have green values, uh, you get a lot of buy-in. So Californians are already committed 
right now to essentially decarbonize in their electricity mix. So it, there's not a lot of upside if you're campaigning within the Democratic Party anyway in California on that basis. Interestingly, though, there are ballot initiatives and there are other measures that do factor in that maybe they don't adhere specifically to a candidate or an individual, but they're very much a function of the election. So one of them is in California. California has a 12 cent gasoline tax, which has been in place for a year. Uh, it is, if you think about what gasoline taxes are, a carbon tax. And so there's a ballot initiative to roll that back. Uh, Washington State, which has the distinction of being one of the lowest carbon intensity of end use consumption for voter kinds of states in the union, with also very low energy spending for voters in the union. So a place where voters don't spend much and their energy is pretty clean, uh, they've got a, a, it's not a carbon tax. No, we use the, the, the clean word fee, which therefore absolves you of taxation, uh, but a, a carbon fee, a $15 carbon fee on the ballot. And uh, these are the kinds of things that, again, the, the contest through this sort of referendum mechanism is never the end of the story. If you think about what happens with a differently disposed government at some point in the future, a legislature can address how it works. The regulatory process can break down. But it would be a very strong signal if Washington state voters were to, to support it. Mm-hmm. So um, let's look at the other side of the ledger, which is what kind of political outcomes can come from the midterm elections and what might that mean for um, energy policy making, either at the state or federal level, we can start wherever you want to start. Well, so the the answer is, you know, what what's going to happen first of all in the in the Congress in the U.S. And, you can tell us what the outcome of the oh yeah, I've got we've got it written down right here. I've got <laughs> the answers you. in this index card in my pocket. <laughs> no, the 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 Congress is veering towards Republicans potentially gaining a seat, perhaps Heidi Heitkamp losing to Kevin Cramer in North Dakota, and there's four score or no, maybe not that many, but a dozen. Uh, very, very close House races and three or four dozen more uh, that are toss-ups, most of them held by Republicans. And so the House could, although it's by no means guaranteed to go Democrat. So let's start with the, the idea that you end up with the status quo, but Democrats take out a lot of Republicans in the House. The ones that are likely to take out are members of the Climate Caucus, a lot of the moderates if you look at their voting scores. So what you're left with is a residuum of conservative anti-climate activism Republicans, uh, which probably makes for less compromise legislatively, even if there were to be some sort of climate compromise, which I, I think is is still many years off, if not indefinitely far away uh, in the Congress as it currently stands. Uh, looking at the, the other outcome, if you have Democrats surprising to the upside and sweeping both chambers, uh, legislation doesn't seem very likely. Right. It's not as though President Trump loses his veto power. And in many cases, that that sort of outcome, that unexpected win for Democrats would probably cause Republicans to hunker down in Congress, uh, not compromise, look for ways in which they they might try to to defend coming up in 2020, where they have a majority of seats exposed in the Senate relative to Democrats. But intervention from those Democrats, even if they win one chamber to say nothing of both into the regulatory process could be quite significant. The word is oversight. Uh, oversight sounds sort of mundane, like, OK, I'm watching you, making sure you're – it's like babysitting or something, but it's not. Uh, done by a skilled practitioner, John Dingell, uh, former chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, was very skilled at uh, bringing members of the administration up to the Hill to answer questions and then giving them many more questions to answer after that. As a way of slowing down agendas, if nothing else. 
And after a few adverse meetings with one's overseer, uh, regulators can start to look pragmatically at the, the options that they have and change within that option set. So you could really change energy policy even if Democrats just control the legislature in one chamber. Can I ask a question on that? Because I think towards the beginning of this administration, you saw what some folks thought was a breakdown in the ability for oversight to, to serve its function, which is, you know, the Congress would ask for something or try and bring a representative from the administration to their committee and they just wouldn't get an answer. They wouldn't get complete answers. Has that oversight function changed at all? Like, I mean, can, the assumption, which I think is, com- you know, completely right, that that a, a split government has the, you know, Congress, the party in Congress tends to do a lot more oversight and try and slow down what the administration in power is able to do. Is there a way that this administration could get out of that in some way? Oh, yeah. Bailing on things is is always executive prerogatives are substantial. Uh, it's always underappreciated how much presidents can do. But if Democrats win even one chamber, then that chamber will have appropriators uh, where the committees are run by Democrats. And those appropriators control the purse strings for the agencies they oversee. In a lot of cases, the, the chairman of the authorizing committee may very well be on the appropriation subcommittee for that specific function of government. And so uh, you you then ignore your overseers at your own peril. It's very hard to proceed with your agenda when Congress won't let you spend money or, more importantly, in addition to the the, the ongoing sort of budgeting process, the reprogramming process to repartition how an agency spends money, that too is at the discretion of the appropriations subcommittee for that function of government. So it could become, uh, it could become very significant uh, just because that oversight function would now have – it would have more punch behind it if Democrats were willing to use it. And what about the other scenario if it's a Republican sweep? How far can this administration go with, you know, one of the criticisms of the, the, the federal regulatory policymaking process right now is you can't really solidify anything through legislation because you can't, you know, change the underpinning laws behind some of maybe like the Clean Air Act or some of the things that the EPA does. Would any of that change if Republicans had an even larger majority? Is that on the table uh, in, in, in the post-midterm environment? Well, the answer is probably not, at least if what they – if what Republicans wanted to advance through the legislature was controversial. You need 60 votes to get through the Senate. Uh, the filibuster for legislation hasn't died, at least not yet. Um, Democrats right now who represent voters in states that voted for President Trump in 2016 have a lot of reasons to think twice before they vote against the president and go at loggerheads with Republicans. Now, it turns out that some of the Democrats from energy-intensive states, folks like Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Democrat, uh, or Heidi Heitkamp, if she wins her contest, may still vote with Republicans on energy because they have the native economic incentives to do so. But come 2020, you'll have 22 Republicans in the Senate who are on cycle out of 34 up for bid. And of the remaining 12 Democrats, only two will represent states that voted for Trump in 2016. So you'll have a sort of less organically, politically uh, compliant Democratic caucus. So that means that uh, codifying stuff in legislation may not be impossible, but controversial stuff will have bigger breaks on it probably than it does today. 
So I know you guys have a sort of a nine matrix uh, outcome mm-hmm. of the uh, of the midterm election cycle. What are some of the other interesting scenarios that you think people should be watching out for? Well, so it's a matrix of essentially Democrats sweeping uh, in both chambers, uh, going all the way through the the varied middle ground outcomes where Republicans you know, save the Senate but don't gain seats, Republicans lose the Senate, and so forth. Uh, you know the, these. It probably overanalyzes, but the point of it is to look at some of the 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 non the non policy political elements that start to show up. Uh, among them, if Republicans control the Senate, then the judiciary continues its transformation towards more pro Trump judges. That has a way of pendulum proofing the regulations that go into effect. You can't say that a nominating president guarantees a jurisprudential outlook of a certain kind. A lot of judges have their own philosophies no matter who nominates them. Some of them go native. But the net result is that if you have a deregulatory agenda that you want to bolster with judges who might look favorably upon it in the federal circuits, then that that advancing is important. Um, Democrats uh, may be able to peel off Republicans in in some cases if there's an adverse Russia report, it may not have to find the president guilty of anything. It may just look really bad. And if it does, it may be the sort of thing that, that factors into some Republican defections on policy. But if the Republicans come out sweeping, then they're probably going to be well cohesive with the president and leave very little room for the sorts of compromises or, or middle ground outcomes that could happen legislatively. Uh, more to the point, they probably will at least set the stage for a a more aggressive regulatory agenda. The the Trump administration will probably be trying to get a lot of things on the books, uh, some of them in hopes of of finishing in a second term, or if not finishing, uh, at least cluttering uh, the rollback rollback rolls for the next administration. The re-rollback. The re-rollback, yeah. (laughs) But but so really, the the coherence and the, the judiciary are some of the elements that are easy to miss. When the Republicans are all moving together, as they have been, the administration can get things done faster. And you brought up Russia, which I know you were doing somewhat in a domestic policy context. Um, but what about things that are on the foreign policy side of the ledger, either trade or sanctions-wise? Are, are any of those impacted by the midterm election outcome? Well, if Democrats win one chamber, the question is, what will they fight? And they may very well push for a more aggressive intervention, sanctions-wise, into Russia. Uh, They're not necessarily going to intervene as aggressively into trade. There's a lot of Democrats who support some of the protectionist moves the Trump administration has taken on steel and might actually want them to continue. Uh, The degree to which the, the, the Russia sanctions go forward or not, or for that matter, any legislative action directed at the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, probably depends a little bit on the outcomes, right? If Republicans come out uh, well ahead in both chambers, they may not have as much incentive to go after the president on whose coattails they have just essentially defended their their leadership roles. Uh, If, on the other hand, they have a more fragmented outcome, there might be some willingness, and particularly, again, in the context of things that that look bad for for the exposed Republicans in the Senate coming up. Now, the last thing, just in regards to the House, remember that if the House loses a lot of those moderates, then the Republicans that are going to be left behind are going to be less likely to cohere around the sorts of compromises that might bring you Russia sanctions legislation. 
right? Those are the sorts of things the the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, CATSA, in 2017 had Republicans on the bill. But you know, you start to peel off a lot of those Republicans in that in that Democrat gain but don't win House outcome. So, um, what about? the next election cycle is there are there things that you're watching from this midterm election cycle that will inform the things that people who are planning campaigns for the next presidential election cycle or the people who are thinking about you know the art of the possible over the next two years versus the next four years should or are watching uh, in in the midterms well it goes without saying that if you're starting to think about 2020 then you must be thinking about presidential cycle gasoline prices one of the uh, one of the news stories that came out uh, recently was that the Trump administration was going to the International Maritime Organization and asking to essentially modify, not roll back, but modify the sulfur rules for for ship fuel. And uh, the idea, if there is a political idea behind this, could be to try to give some price relief in the event of tighter margins. Uh, tighter supply for middle distillates, low sulfur diesel fuel, low sulfur heating oil for those heating oil customers in some of those essential states, particularly Pennsylvania. So some of those things are, are potentially already hatching right now. The, the ethanol strategy is going to be important as long as Republicans continue to control the, uh, the Midwest politically, as they have done for, for many years. The corn states uh, create natural loggerheads with refiners. And uh, on some issues, the Trump administration is probably going to have to concoct packages that are palatable to refiners as well. So you mentioned specific like ballot initiatives that affect the state level policies. But what about like governor's races and leadership at the state level? Is there anything broadly transformative or interesting happening on energy there? You're very right to bring it up. And I, I'm remiss for not getting to the governor's races uh, and some of the state policies. Um, one of the interesting ones is that if you look at Governor Kasich in Ohio, he's term limited. Uh, you could end up in a scenario where if you have the right combination of all Republican gubernatorial leadership and legislative leadership, Ohio could become the first state in the union to lose its RPS. So its renewable portfolio standard has been much embattled and defended by Governor Kasich. So to some degree, uh, if you think about what the an outcome could be is that if you end up with the status quo, really, in Ohio, you could end up with a non-status quo outcome on the RPS. Uh, in Colorado, um, that's still pronounced Colorado and not Colorado, <laughs> yeah, I think right? You're fine, okay, yeah. okay. Uh, the, uh, the setback proposal on the ballot right now, you know, it could pass. It, it, if it does, the leadership that you have at the gubernatorial level in addressing how to roll it back could make a big difference. Would Jared Polis, who once proposed his own setback proposal, uh, his own setback policy, go ahead and, and vigorously try to roll it back once it was in place? Chances are he might, but uh, it could be done much more vigorously by his Republican challenger if he's governor. Um, the you know, longer term, Colorado is very much a battleground in terms of the, the, the questions of fracking and, and local governance over, uh, over oil and gas production writ large. And so the, the gubernatorial outcome could also shape the, the degree to which the, the state has somebody who is actively defending or passively defending the industry. In 2020, if there were another ballot initiative, would Governor Polis be as aggressive in opposing it as he was during his campaign in 2018? Or is Governor 
current Governor John Hickenlooper is right now? It's an open question. Uh, governors do represent entire states uh, and have a way of becoming more pragmatic as a result. Uh, but so th- these are the kinds of outcomes that, that do make a difference. One last question I have, which is uh, generally about a sentiment that we hear a lot and certainly people talk a lot about in the energy space, which is there's a lack of sort of a coherent energy strategy. It's probably like the one consistent narrative in U.S. energy policy is that we don't have a consistent energy policy. And people are always sort of looking for it, right? But what you have described in the current political context is much more of a continuation of tactical uh, uh, fights uh, rather than sort of like big strategic changes in the way that we're looking at the energy policy landscape, for lack of a better word. Is there or are there ways in which public sentiment around those things might be changing that we're not picking up in sort of our current estimates of the policy conversation? So let me give you an example. You know, the, when the Trump administration in the 2016 election cycle came through, there was a huge focus on the way in which energy fed into job creation, into the economy, into disenfranchised portions of the U.S. political electorate that felt left behind by globalization and all of those sorts of things. Whether one thinks that the Trump administration's methods of getting to a higher rate of economic growth or higher levels of full employment either those methods are you know, sound or, quite frankly, even if the policies of this administration are responsible for that better position of the U.S. economy right now, is it fair to assume that those sort of drivers of energy policy sentiment in political cycles, which is does it create jobs, does it create economic opportunity, will be as salient in the next, this political election cycle, the next presidential election cycle than they have been in the past, or will it be something different? Well, I think one of the important parts of the energy debate of the last decade has been a transition from sort of scarcity mentality discussions to symbolic discussions, questions about the the Keystone Pipeline began to take precedence over questions of price. Uh, And after that, we started to hear Democrats, for example, campaigning in a way that differentiated them very much from the Republican challengers for all renewable power by some date certain in the not so distant future, sort of intermediate future. Um, so the the main point about an election is to show that you're essentially different in some way from your competitor. And this is sort of the most basic of campaign doctrine. And the uh, the reason why energy is likely to still be a factor is that the diversity of energy resources in the U.S., and the, the relatively extreme differences between some states which are greening up dramatically and some states which are benefiting dramatically from fossil energy uh, booms uh, are such that you, you have different points of reference. One can talk about a fossil future and one can talk about a green future. And the United States is diverse enough to furnish examples of both, thus informing debate and keeping alive what is you know, really not so much about difference. Most people really just want energy to be there and to be cheap. Uh, and uh, most voters, I suspect, at the end of the day, would probably stop with those things. Uh, but when they get infused with attributes that link to an ideology, energy can suddenly seem much bigger than just kilowatt hours and, and gallons. Well, we will be watching the midterm elections with you, Kevin, and maybe we'll have you back to figure out what what came of them and and what you make of all of those changes. Well, I'd look forward to it. Thanks. Great. Thanks. This has been Energy 360. Thanks for listening. 